Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, and cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, given the hospitality. Let's pray one more time. Father, these are such uh, simple words, really, but what a wealth of meaning. What a wealth of application. What a wealth of commands we just read. Lord, help us to take these statements and let them come home to roost. Help us to face these statements honestly. And help us, Lord, to find an increasing measure. As we yield unto Thee, we find we can minister living water to others. Thank You, Lord, for giving us Your Holy Spirit, without which we could never grow in grace. But yet You've given us spiritual power if we'll only believe You. Take advantage of what You've laid before us. Help us, Lord, to understand this morning. Help me, Father, to make these words understood. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, I would guess that every single parent here understands, uh, you may not use the term a lot, but you at least understand the concept of sibling rivalry, uh, fighting between children. You know, it's interesting, if you read something that the world publishes, they've got to come up with an explanation for these kind of things and try to leave theological terminology out of it. Now, for instance, I read an article by the University of Michigan School of Medicine. And, of course, a medical school it shouldn't be so much interested in naming symptoms as it is dealing with root causes, right? Uh, you don't explain what cancer is by merely what it causes because you can't fix it by dealing with what it causes. You have to fix it by dealing with what it is. But the School of Medicine has a little blurb on sibling rivalry. And uh, here's how the University of Michigan defines sibling rivalry. Sibling rivalry is the jealousy, competition, and fighting between brothers and sisters. It is a concern for almost all parents of two or more kids. Problems often start right after the birth of the second child. Sibling rivalry usually continues throughout childhood and can be very frustrating and stressful to parents. And then they go on to give some tips for what exactly causes sibling rivalry. Well, you can imagine what might be on this list. Uh, number one, each child is competing to define who they are as an individual. As they discover who they are, they try to find their own talents, activities, and interests, and they want to show they're separate from their siblings. Number two, children feel they're getting unequal amounts of your attention, discipline, and responsiveness. Number three, children may feel that their relationship with their parents is threatened by the arrival of a new baby. Number four, your children's developmental stages will affect how mature they are and how well they can share your attention and get along with one another. Number five, children who are hungry, bored, or tired are more likely to 
become frustrated and start fights. Now, of course, theologically speaking, we recognize that sibling rivalry is just the offshoot of two sinners living in close proximity. When you add together the components of a sin nature inherited by birth with the immaturity of youthfulness, things can get out of hand in a hurry. Thank God He puts parents on the scene so the world doesn't just fall apart. Now, I suppose it's rather tragic to point out, but it's true and necessary to understand that sibling rivalry is not limited to children. Sibling rivalry happens many times between brothers and sisters in Christ within the household of God. What is it about human nature that so often inclines us to take for granted those that are closest to us and treat with almost contempt those whom we should love the most? You've all no doubt felt in your own family Sometimes it's easier to act ungodly in your own home than it is outside the walls. It's a little harder to keep up the facade, I guess, up out there. That's part of the fact that, uh, that shows that we're sinners. Now, sibling rivalry within the church uh, largely depends on the level of domination by our sin nature, where we are in maturity in our Christian walk. But I find it interesting if you listen to those five descriptions of sibling rivalry by the University of Michigan I mentioned to children if you put spiritual application of those they're very very accurate among us as adults with one another we're all children in the sight of God let me read them again with a few applications each child is competing to define who they are as an individual. As they discover who they are, they try to find their own talents, activities, and interests and they want to show they're separate from their siblings. They're not just part of the mass. Children feel they're getting unequal amounts of God's attention. Uh, Children may feel their relationship with God is threatened by the arrival of a new child. Developmental stages, levels of maturity is going to affect it. Children who are hungry, bored, or tired. When we're spiritually malnourished. When we're flagging in zeal and boredom in our Christian life. uh, When we're exhausted spiritually and physically, we're more likely to cause problems, aren't we? Well, that same is still manifested among us if we're not careful. Last week, uh, we looked at the Christian as a member of a body. And that's an important application. This week, the emphasis is more the Christian as a sibling in a family. Now, because of the subject matter this week, this message is about as practical as it gets. Uh, There's no massive theological words. There's no deeply complicated mysteries. It's just several short commands that uh, really just describe Christianity walking up the neighborhood street. It describes Christianity and shoe leather, especially within the household of faith. How are we to treat each other? Notice we'll begin in verse 9. Statement number one, let love be without dissimulation. Now that word love, as most of you know, there's many Greek words for that. This one, as you might guess, is the word often translated charity or agape, uh, which refers to a supernatural love stemming from God Himself. Okay, This type of love is not one that humanity is born with. This is not something that humanity possesses. 
This is the type of love that only comes through supernatural life given by God Himself. So in that sense, the world cannot exercise this. It's not possible. Of course, uh, it says in Romans 5.8, God commended or showed His love toward us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, uh, Christ died for us. Now it goes without saying, this love is a fruit of the Spirit. We cannot display it without abiding in the vine. We can't display it without communion with and subjection to the living God. This kind of love is not something we even possess. This kind of love is something that comes through us to others and in no other way. We're merely conduits. We're merely channels. But he says, exercise this love without dissimulation. Now, dissimulation means hypocrisy. Don't display charity with hypocrisy. How's that done? I suppose it could be done a lot of ways. I find it interesting you would have to say that, but it shows what's dwelling in here. In one way, it could be holding people to a standard that we ourselves are unwilling to keep. Portraying some sort of image. You know, we love others so much, uh, we want to help them repent of their sin, but we're not willing to do the same. It could be loving people to their face. How are you doing, brother? Good to see you this morning. How's the chickens and the hogs doing? And then tearing them apart behind their back. Well, the Lord still hears every word, by the way. It could be loving people in order to gain something from them. I think it's important to search our heart as parents sometimes. You ever find you have to ask yourself the question... Am I training my children to obey for the Lord's sake or so that I look good in public? It's a bad reason. Wrong reason. It could be loving people to get financial help or some kind of following or to make sales contacts. Uh, I've been involved in the sales world in the past and one of the things I'd heard at times was someone would say, well, you need to go be part of a church. That's always a great source of meeting a potential customers. Wrong reason. Wrong reason. Agape or charity is God-centered. Now, there are many benefits to being surrounded by Christian people. There are. But may I say, if you're here in this group because of just fringe benefits, you're here for the wrong reasons. I hope you can say you're here to become more like Christ. I hope you can say you're here to learn the mind of the Lord. And charity is by nature more giving than it is taking. It's seeing what is eternally best for others. Now, notice what's linked immediately after that. Tell me, is there a dichotomy between love and hate? Or should I say, can love exist without hate? The answer is no. The very next statement is to abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Here's what that literally means. Hate that which is evil. Glue yourself to that which is good. True love can't exist without hating that which is harmful and negative. Let's say you take little Johnny and you love him dearly and you kiss him on the forehead and say, Son, I'll love you no matter what. 
You look out the window and he's out playing dump trucks and you see a mountain lion come stalking out of the forest. Your heart's going to surge with some hatred because that boy you love is about to be destroyed by something you now hate. And the reason you hate that thing is because of what it's doing to the one you love. You know, God's the same way with that. Uh, Today, love is often defined as being blind, being this... Uh, just gobbledygook of, of feeling and, and emotion. And while we just love so much, we don't point out Eric. May I remind you, the same God that commands love without hypocrisy says, hate evil. You can't love your brother in Christ without hating sin. You cannot. It's not possible. Someone says, well, what's evil? I probably don't need to define it, but I will say this. Evil is actually many Greek words translated evil. There's several different shades of meaning. This one defines it by mean of contrast, the poneros. It means that which is against kindness, graciousness, and usefulness. So evil defined here is that which causes spiritual injury. That which is spiritually harmful and damaging. Now what's the main way that's done? By portraying God as other than He is. Or diverting attention away from Him. That's essentially what evil does. Many people, I fear, in Christian circles define activities or things they watch or something else. Well, is it bad? And what they mean is, does it have a bunch of swear words and show a lot of naked people? If you don't go deeper than that... You see, here's the issue. What does this portray about God? What kind of worldview does this help to to, to form, especially in the mind of a child? What does this do with my affections that the Lord has said? Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Is this diverting attention from that holy place? And if the answer is yes, then that thing may not be intrinsically evil, but it might be occupying an evil place for you. Well, God says our default attitude towards sinful activity, association, and behavior should be despise them. Abhor. Be disgusted by it. And by the way, it's not... Listen, sin is what divides, not truth. How many of you seen people trying to stand for truth maligned as troublemakers? When it's the sin that's come in the door that's caused the problem. This is a common thing. I don't know how many times I've seen this. Somebody will get caught up in something. Your church will go to start a certain way. And the people that have stood the same place they've been for years, all of a sudden are called the troublemakers. Sin divides wrongly. Truth divides rightly. Not all division is necessarily a bad thing. Now notice he doesn't say hate people. He says abhor that which is evil, not him. He's not saying hate people, but he's saying hate error, just like you'd hate the plague coming through your village. Some of you read through Leviticus 14 not that long ago. You read about leprosy in a house. You remember that one? And, and I remember reading through that thinking, how could, I mean, what exactly were they talking about? Leprosy is a broad term. But in the walls of these homes, there was some kind of plague, some kind of spreading filth that would actually get in the wall and discolor. Remember that? And he was telling the priest how to deal with it. And look, if it keeps spreading, you tear the house down. Burn it. Why do you think he would tell you and I that lesson? What does it have to do with us? Part of it is because 
Sin, like leaven, like that plague, spreads, defiles, and kills. And so part of the warning there is don't let it in the door of your house. Because it's going to get into the very walls. It's going to spread. That's what leaven does. And also I think it teaches the principle of replacement, which I've mentioned before. The Bible never says, take this evil thing out of your life and do nothing. You put off the bad, you put on the good. You get rid of the wrong music. You pick up the right music. You get rid of the wrong usage of time. You pick up the right usage of time. You fill the void with something good. And then he says, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love. Now, kindly affection, it's, it's actually a compound word. It's the only place this appears in the New Testament. But here's what it means. Cherish your own family. It's talking about in the spiritual sense. Uh, most of you have heard the statement, blood is thicker than what? Water, someone says. And uh, what they mean is there's this bond in blood relatives that sticks. But you and I, if you belong to Christ, you have an affection towards other brothers and sisters in Christ because they are blood relatives. Through the blood of Christ. And may I say the blood of Christ is thicker than any other blood out there. Isn't it true? I mean, you could have two identical twins. One knows the Lord, one doesn't. And here they are sitting in a coffee shop. And uh, they're sitting across the table from a Christian guy from Jamaica. Who's going to have the closest bond? It's probably not going to be the identical twins. It's going to be the ones with the spiritual kinship. Because they're going to see the purpose for life the same. They're going to be motivated the same. They're going to discern the same. They're going to have the same passions. They're going to hate evil. They're going to be on the same page because of the blood of Christ. So, it's recognizing God's workmanship in fellow Christians and the fact that you're going to inhabit eternity together. Think God's sin's going to be removed. I tell you truly, I look forward to the day when there's no need to separate from other brethren because of certain stances they take. As the Lord is my witness, I don't like having to do that. But if I'm going to obey the Word of God, I have to do that. I have to. But there are brethren that I say, thank you, God, someday that division is going to be removed. The separation is going to go away. The sword's going to be dropped. And I'm going to be corrected too. I thank the Lord for that. So we've got to remember those separations are short term. Even when it's somebody say, brother, we can't walk together. Remember something. The trail only goes apart for a short while. And it's going to be together forever again. And God's going to sort all of that out. When he says kindly affection with brotherly love, that's Philadelphia, brotherly love. Remember John 15, 12, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. One of the marvelous displays of the work of God in, in Christian lives is seeing people from different backgrounds, different interests, different vocations, and seeing the supernatural affection they have for each other because of their yieldedness to God. And therefore... Because of their bond that they have. When Paul wrote to Thessalonica, he said, now they had their problems, but he said, as touching brotherly love, ye have no need that I write unto you. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Paul said, I don't even need to tell you this. The Lord's teaching you this just fine. There's to be this tenderness, a loyalty that marks Christian fellowship. It's the opposite of eyeing one another with suspicion or remaining aloof and distant for fear of being hurt. 
Sometimes that means caring enough to risk the relationship to confront sin and error, which real friends do. If you've ever read through the life of George Whitfield, one of the things that sticks out is how well he took correction. You know, he'd get a letter from a brother who maybe wasn't super gracious about it. And the guy's just ripping him up one side and down the other, and Whitfield would write back something like, My dear brother, I thank you for your heartfelt reaching out to me. Only one thing I would ask of you. Don't be so tender and worried about hurting my feelings next time, but speak the truth plainly, for I need it. Your servant, George Whitfield. It was amazing. Uh, He did this with John Wesley. John Wesley wasn't the nicest to him sometimes. But what it showed is he he didn't view people willing to speak in correction of him as an enemy. He understood this person loves me enough to actually say something, which many times is a mark of a real friend. And then he says, in honor preferring one another. Honor means to value, to esteem. It's used in a variety of settings. Most notably of Christ. Under under you therefore which believe, He is precious. He is valued. You know, the word prefer there, though, is an interesting word. It's another compound word with an only New Testament appearance here. But it's made up of two words. The first is the prefix pro, P-R-O. Some of you probably remember that. Remember the discussion on foreknowledge. Prognosco. Or uh, predestination. Pra aritzo. Pre-horizons. The word pra means to go before. And so this word prefer means to go before and consider. To show deference. Now here's what that means. Because your brothers and sisters in Christ are walking miracles. Because they've been purchased by none other than the very blood of the Son of God. Because they're His workmanship and dwelt by His Spirit. Because they're exceedingly precious in the sight of God, listen to this, you put those two words together, we are to each lead the way in showing respect and consideration for each other. You know, the fact that that prefix praw is used, here's here's what it does. It takes away the argument of somebody saying, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for somebody to love me. I'm just going to sit here and just wait for someone to show affection, just warm up to me. You see, this compound word means every one of you, you belong to Christ, are to go before and take the lead in showing affection. And you know something? If everybody does that, think what it's like. Have you ever done much marriage counseling? You find many times it's, well, you know, if they'll clean up their act, here's what, here's what I'm going to do. And then over here, the other says, you know, if, if they'll just do this and this, then, then why I'm going to... Biblical counsel says, go before and show affection. True in marriage. True in family. True in the church. It puts the ball in everyone's court to be the instigator of showing affection. That's the exact opposite of a competitive mindset, a sort of rivalry. I mean, the only competition, if you want to call it that, among the Lord's people should be who can notice and fill the needs of others the fastest. And by the way, I think you all know this, but I'll mention it. If you see needs that this church can help with, if you see ministries in the community that you think may be a good opportunity or a need we could feel, feel free to say something about it. I don't see everything. Many times that's how the Lord's going to open these things up, by when we see the needs and we, we work together to fill them. 
And then he says, not slothful in business. Slothful means lazy or tardy. If you're tardy for class, that's not necessarily a flattering thing. It means you're late. He's saying, don't be slothful, don't be lazy in business. I think it's necessary to define the word business. Of course, we naturally jump to our occupation. Uh, The word business actually means speedy diligence. It's not talking about so much what you're doing. It's talking about an attitude. It could be a normal vocation. It could be a ministry. It could be any other task that you're called to do. Basically, the idea is have a go-getter's mindset in whatever God's put in front of you. Most of us know at least the words of Colossians 3.23. Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. And do we understand this morning? There's not one thing in your life, not one thing that you are to do in the will of God that you are to do half-heartedly. Not one. You know, sometimes we have this view that the will of God is all these different parts and pieces. The will of God for us is like a river. It's going to have sticks and leaves and water and nutrients and all these other components, but it's all together going the same way. We've got to see God's will for us the same way. Um, Think of the errant thought patterns that make us do this. What is it that makes us do things half-heartedly? Sometimes it's somebody's regular job. They say, well, I just... I don't think this is important to some kind of ministry. I, I, just, I, just don't feel, I just don't see the reason for it. Not true. Everything can be done for the glory of God if it's the will of God for you. Everything. He says, do it with all your might. I think this thought process has haunted a lot of God's people for centuries. This whole antithesis between sacred and secular. Like you're two people. This is me at church, in prayer, reading the Bible, and maybe having neighbors over for evangelism. And here's me at work and taking out the trash and mowing the lawn. False. False. You realize whatever's in the will of God for you can be just as spiritual as opening the Scriptures, sitting in church, or taking out the trash. If it's the will of God, it can be done to the glory of God. There is no division line. Man has invented that. Sometimes it causes us real thought problems. That was what was going on in Thessalonica. You know, some of the people wanted to sell their goods. They wanted to wait on a mountain somewhere. Jesus is coming back. Why work? Paul said, keep one on the sky, one eye on the sky, and get to work. Christianity has always been a helper of diligence and industry anywhere it's gone. I look back to my early days preparing for ministry and not understanding this, and it caused me tremendous struggles. I felt like God's called me to be a pastor, and here I am working as a contractor, and I can't pour my heart into it. I just, I just can't. I've got to back away, back away, back away. I can't do it with all my might. I've got to do it half-heartedly. And the Lord let me go through that dichotomy for years until I understood something. If God's called you to do that, do it with your heart and soul poured into it. Little did I know God was building up that business so that I could come here and be a pastor. It wasn't fighting it. It was preparation for it. But it took me a long time to get that. To get out of the guilt of breathing sawdust during the day until I learned, you know what? God is with you there. When Jesus was a carpenter, He forever made secular occupation sacred. Right? Was He wasting time those years? Not at all. It could be sinful procrastination can make us think this way. Remember the slothful says there's a lion in the street? Right? In other words, I can't do it as an excuse. You know, there may not be a lion in the street. There might be. The diligent guy gets up, kills the lion, and, and, and goes and does what he's supposed to do, right? 
It could be nagging doubts about what you should be doing. Now, I'm not talking, understand what I'm saying, I'm not talking about willful disobedience. But every one of you know what it's like to have moments during the day where you're not sure what to do next, don't you? And here you are, Lord, what should I do? There's no voice from heaven. There's no strong inclination. I always think of the proverb that says, in all labor there is profit. You know, we go through our daily duties. I'm honestly convinced, generally speaking, in those kind of situations, it's better to be slightly off and do it with all your might and confidence with the Lord's leading than to waste 30 minutes in the analysis paralysis dishonoring the Lord with sinful fear and doubt while you're wondering what to do. Many times that's a product of fear. And it's a product of fear that what I think I should be doing doesn't seem spiritual and therefore I can't do it with all my might. I mean, you husbands that are here, when you're on a date with your wife, do it with all your might. Rejoice with the wife of your youth. Treat it like the last date you're going to have. You dads, you're, you're out playing kickball with a child. Do it with all your might. Do it heartily as unto the Lord. I was playing baseball with one of my kids yesterday. And I was audibly saying to myself, standing out there, I was saying, I'm not in the office. I'm not at church. I'm not on the job. I'm playing baseball. I was telling myself that. You know, for years I've said something to myself. Uh, some years ago as I was thinking about it, and I ran across it this week. I guess it apparently was something Jim Elliott used to say too. I don't know if I heard it from him years ago. But here's what it was. Wherever you are, be all there. You're doing laundry, be there. You're at work, be there. You're in ministry in church, be there. You're playing baseball with a child, be there. Be there. Do it heartily as unto the Lord. Be all there. He says be fervent in spirit. The word fervent is a word used of either liquid at a boiling point or solid metal when they're glowing orange. He's saying be red hot in spirit. Be full of expectancy and zeal. Now think about this. The Lord said, let your light so shine before men. Now we live in an age of LED bulbs. Boy, you feel them and they're not even hot. What was true about every single light back then? It was burning and it was consuming the element. You see, it gave light because of the fire burning. Because the candle wick itself and the oil was being burned up. It had gotten hot enough to turn into a flame. And it was that flame that gave the light to others. How's your spirit this morning, really? Towards life. Towards family. Towards others. Toward the things of God. Do you find it glowing? Expectant? Hot? Or is it down to this wispy smoke? That's symptomatic of a deeper problem. Could be many things besides blatant sin. Life has a way of snuffing things out. And months go by... Especially, you, 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 many of you know, you first become a Christian, you're excited about everything. Everything's new, everything's on fire and fireworks, and you want to tell all the world about Christ. 
And then years go by and trials come and complacency sets in and pretty soon you look back 24 months and you say, where did the flame go? You see, the Lord's giving this command to make me think, what is the, what's the flame on the altar? What's the pilot light? You know your furnace? You can hit the thermostat and say, hey, the temp needs to go up, but guess what? If the pilot light's out, it's not going up. He's saying, check your pilot light. If it's dimmer than it was, if it's going out, if it's down to glowing embers, go to God and ask Him why. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be. Fervent in spirit, he says, serving the Lord. Basically, that means being the bond slave of a great and mighty king. I will say this, nothing will kill zeal faster than losing sight of this fact. Your central duty each and every day is to present yourself as a living sacrifice to do the will of God. If a day is not started there, with getting the will to lay down on the altar... Very little else can be done in the spiritual life. It all starts there. You know, it's when we get off the altar that fear arises. It's when doubts assault. It's when confusion starts to take hold and the flame just retreats and starts to go out. Sometimes it can be months before we notice. Rejoicing in hope. Be cheerful in hope. Most of you probably remember from several months ago what Bible hope is. It's not a guy jumps off a cliff and hopes he hits the bottom. It's not, I sure hope grandma comes next year. Bible hope is a confidence in that which is unseen in future. That's what Bible hope is. He says, be cheerful because hope is always looking toward the hills from whence our salvation comes. Hope is deliberately calling to mind and thanking God for what He's going to do. Now, I'm not talking about what you think He's going to do. I'm talking about what you know He's going to do. I'll tell you, there's nothing satisfying to the soul sometimes, at least to me. When I'm, I'm in a vicious spiritual battle and I say, Lord God, I thank You, the devil's going to fry in hell. I thank You for the day I'm going to put my foot on his neck. I'm going to see him face to face. And I'm going to see him sentenced. Lord, I thank You this world's going to burn. And I thank You sin is temporary. And I thank You I'm going to be given a glorified body and I'll never sin again. That's hope. And listen, no matter what you're going through, there's always the horizon of things that God says is coming. You may not know between here and there. Don't put your hope in what you think He might do and how you're going to figure it out. But put your hope in what He says He's going to do. You can be cheerful in the midst of anything with that in your mind. Patient in tribulation. Now, tribulation is just a general word for pressure, weight. And it has infinite forms, doesn't it? Now, I want to remind us, though, this is not a standalone passage. I would say if we had these three words and that was it, patience in tribulations, it wouldn't be a lot of help. What this is, is a reminder to seek out or remind yourself how to be patient, which is dealt with in many, many other places. Uh, listen, patience in trials is not learned by focusing on being patient. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you see a guy out on the road. He's got a 100-pound sack of gravel on his shoulders. Okay? He has to carry that five miles in the heat. And uh, at the end of that five miles, there's going to be a steak dinner waiting to eliminate. 
Now let's say you find this guy at mile number two. Now he's in sorry shape. He's hurting. And boy, you're walking slow. The buzzards are circling. Now, you're charged with encouraging this guy to finish the course. What are you going to do? You're going to go up to him and go, Hey, carry the gravel. Carry the gravel. Carry the gravel. Or are you going to go up to him and go, Steak dinner. Steak dinner. Steak dinner. Many times we crumple under trial because we're thinking, I've got to be patient. I've got to be patient. I've got to be patient. That's not where the help is. Patience is found by deliberately calling to mind exactly what God has said He is doing through the trial. Passages like Romans 8, we know all things work together for good. Why? Because God's sovereignly given this to conform me to the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, He's given the trial to to prepare me to comfort others. There's going to be future ministry coming out of this. Romans chapter 5, Tribulation works patience. Patience works experience. That's proof I'm the real deal in the Christian life. Experience works hope. A confident expectation which will not be ashamed. James 1. Rejoice in trials knowing this. Tribulation worketh patience. And if you follow that through, it brings you to maturity. Patience and tribulation doesn't come by concentrating on being patient. It comes by remembering what God says He is doing. And thank God He tells us that. He doesn't have to. How about this one? Continuing instant in prayer. That basically means maintaining a prayerful state of mind all the time. Now please understand what I'm saying, but I hope this can really help somebody. I've failed at this multitudes of times myself. I bet you hear a statement like continue instant in prayer and automatically you're going F on my report card. Right? I think sometimes our view of prayer just totally shoots us in the foot. Now don't get me wrong, okay? I'm all for long seasons of prayer in the morning. I think it's a good thing. But let me explain what I mean. Let's say you have two ladies. Lady number one, she has a sweet hour of prayer, truly. It's like God is there almost bodily and and, uh, and, and she's thanking Him. She's praising Him. She's worshiping Him. She's expectant. She's excited. She can't wait for the day to come. But she leaves that prayer closet and life hits. And uh, she's not really thinking consciously about the Lord's presence the rest of the day. Lady number two. She has two and a half minutes of prayer in the morning. But she has her thoughts stayed upon the Lord all day. Which one at four in the afternoon is going to be more sane? Many times, I think we treat our morning prayer time as the total focus. Whether or not I had enough prayer time this morning, rather than whether or not I'm communing with Him as I go. And if I do that, defeat is inevitable. It will happen. Here's what I mean. Look at your morning prayer time, not as this time set block where I have to have this much or the days of failure. Look at it as the beginning of an entire day of communion with my Father in Heaven. Here is where, please understand what I'm saying, here is where a prayer list can be a help or a total curse, depending on what place it's given. I I use a prayer list. I've gone through seasons where I haven't. I do. I think it's helpful. I think it's a way to show love to others. But if you treat it as this rigid, uh, have-to-do, prison-type schedule, I have to cover this today. What if God moves in your heart for an entire hour to confess sin alone? That's all you have. 
What if He moves you to praise Him and thank Him for an entire hour and that's all you do? Have you failed or not? If your mindset is, I've got to get to my list, I've got to get to my list, you can't be led by the Spirit. But you see, if you have this view, I'm starting communion for the day with this precious friend of mine. And the central thing is to commune with Him. The central thing is to see Him all day long. This is the beginning. You see what happens when distraction comes. It's no longer God here and my children here. It's God beckoning me elsewhere and going with me. That makes all the difference in the world. You see, in the end of the day, 2, 3 in the afternoon, most of you know what I'm talking about. Your prayer time can be terrific in the a.m., right? What happens at 2.30, 3, 4 p.m.? Why? It's because the focus is how I did then. And you're sitting here going, yeah, but things went so well at 8 a.m. It's not 8 a.m. now. It's not how you did that morning. It's who is God now? Did He get locked in the prayer closet? Or is He right here? That is the basis of continuing instant in prayer. It's this awareness of my own insufficiency. Listen, that 2 or 3 or 4 p.m. afternoon failure is a friend that's trying to drive you here to be instant in prayer because this constant awareness that I can't even keep up a full day, no kidding. No, you can't. But you have a friend who can bear it all. I mean, the essence of abiding in Christ is this growing sense of my pathetic inability and through prayer and faith leaning on His sufficiency. And listen, if that's not there, four hours of morning prayer will not help you in the afternoon when your day starts to implode. It won't. Because it goes back to how I performed in my time block and not as God an ever-present help. Is He the eternal now with me even here in the afternoon when I may have failed? You see, faith can't be in what you did the morning. It's rather It has to be in who God is now. Distributing to the necessity of saints. Now, as the needs of fellow believers come to our attention, we should share our bounty when and if we're able. Galatians 6.17 As you have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. It uses sibling terminology. This household, family members. A few thoughts on that. It largely has to do with the sphere of influence where the Lord places us, our own Jerusalem, so to speak. That's usually how we're going to hear about these things. It can go outside, but I will say this. There's a real complexity in our day and age with these multinational organizations sending a lot of money overseas. I'm not telling anybody don't give to them. I'm just saying be careful. Everybody can show pictures of starving children, and it's very sad, but a lot of these organizations are teaching total heresy. Or like one recently... Uh, their director over there in the Middle East is giving millions of dollars to ISIS. This kind of thing happens all the time. So, I'm not saying don't give. I'm just saying give with discernment to those. If somebody's over there giving bread but teaching a false gospel, there's probably better use for God's money to somebody who's teaching the real gospel and helping. You see what I mean? But it assumes if we're thinking rightly, we're going to be looking for ways to do this. Obviously, all of us have different seasons, different needs, different things we notice, but when extra money comes in, we live in a consumer society, don't we? 5000 extra dollars shows up in the mail, and the tendency is to say, how can I use this for me? Instead of, what does God want me to do with His money? It might be to use it for yourself. 
It might not be. And lastly, we'll finish with this. Given to hospitality. Now when you hear the word hospitality, what do you think of? Let's have each other over for dinner a lot, right? Well, it includes that, but actually Bible hospitality, that's not what it's talking about. Uh, Bible hospitality, it's a two words, again, philos and xenos, brotherly affection for strangers. That's what the word means. Most of us are familiar with Hebrews 13 too. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. Same word, exactly. Because some of them have entertained or housed angels in their home. Okay, now, entertaining strangers doesn't mean hang a free dinner sign down at Walmart with your home address on it. I don't think that's the application in our age. There has to be some wisdom here. But the word stranger basically means somebody from somewhere else. Now, in that day, it was very common for people to travel expecting to stay with people they didn't know. Preachers did that all the time. In Hebrews 13, they showed hospitality to these traveling people, whether ministers or not. And sometimes the Lord says, who knows? You may have had an angel in your own home walking as a man. You didn't even know it. That's quite a thought. Quite a study. But I think the application for us is deliberately noticing those who are out of their element and making them feel at home. Uh, That can be fellow Christians. That can be missionaries. That can be traveling evangelists. That can be neighbors that just moved in. I heard an interesting one yesterday. I talked to this friend of mine. I haven't talked to him in about a year. And I said, boy, what are you you been up to? He lives over in Kentucky now. He's from Alaska. But he just, a long story, but at a providential meeting, he met a guy who's uh, the project manager for the Noah's Ark project. You know, they're building over in Kentucky. Long story short, he ended up moving eight miles from the ark and doing a lot of the finish work inside the ark since I talked to him last. And, uh, but he says, he says, hey, you know what we like to do? He says, you, these Christian families will come for, for hours to see the ark. And he said, you know what they do? He said, they all want to get there as soon as it opens, you know, 8 a.m., and he said, by three in the afternoon, they're beat. Their kids are dragging all they get and walking through a museum or something, and they're, oh, you know, I'm tired. And, and he said, they live eight hours away, nine hours away. They don't want to go home. He said, so I'll see him sitting at the restaurant. He says, I like to go there about three in the afternoon. And he says, I'll see this big family over there, and they just look frustrated because they don't want to go get a hotel, and it's too late to drive home. And he says, I'll just go up to him, and I'll start talking with him and say, hey, why don't you come stay at my house? He says, we've done that three in a row now. We've got to meet some amazing people from clear across the country. That's exactly the type of thing this word's talking about. Like I said, we have to be led of the Spirit. There has to be uh, uh, carefulness with it. You know, you can't... The reality is we do live in a wicked world. But the idea is looking out for the stranger. Looking out for those out of their element, bringing them and making them feel at home. I mean, not only can this sharpen us in our own faith, but it shows the love of God and can open a lot of doors of evangelism. How many unbelieving people have you met that you perceive they're not impressed with how you appear on Sunday? They want to see what Christianity looks like at home, in a home, on Tuesday. That is what's going to speak to them. And many times, hospitality is what's going to do that. Now I realize this is, just, this is basic practical stuff, but I for one thank God for sections like this. Sometimes I think in our carnality, in our, in our flesh we fight, it's not so much the high theological stuff, we can sit and discuss that, but when it gets down to brass tacks, how's your walk? How's the practicality of how that's working out in daily life, in your own church, your own home, your own marriage, 
with your own friends. I mean, how's it really going? How's your spirit this morning? Boiling, hot, dejected, cold, snuffed out, dying, long since dead. What are you going to do about it? You see, that command is to make us look for the root. That command is the warning light going off. You know, when your pilot light and your furnace has a problem, you go and you see these little error codes flashing. The error code doesn't fix it, but what it does is tell you you need to deal with it. Some of these are God's error code. Do you personally know the God of heaven this morning? When you say, yes, I know my sins are forgiven. I know there's one way. I know there's one Savior. I know there's one God. I know there's one message. I know there's only one faith that can save this soul of mine. There's only one doorway to eternal life. Can you say you've come through that door? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can walk through that door. But you've got to know who He is. You've got to know why He came. You've got to know who you are in His sight. But He is willing to save. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these... I guess not so basic instructions. Lord, I pray that nobody will be wrongly discouraged hearing these things, but rather encouraged that we do have the Holy Spirit, that You are quick to pardon, that we carry no flame in ourselves. We have no supernatural love in ourselves. Lord, that can be discouraging, but it also can be so encouraging because we're not the source. Or teach us more fully what it means to walk in the Spirit, to abide in Christ. Help us to be a people, Lord, that's conscious of Your presence in the morning as well as late in the afternoon and evening. When things go like we think they should, when things seem like they're flying apart and make no sense whatsoever, when our plans are carried out and when they're blown to pieces, when we feel well and when we don't, when the children behave and when they don't. Help us, Lord, to look past all of that and see You sitting there on Your throne upon that crystal sea without a ripple on it. Lord, You are our past, You are our present, You are our future. Our hiding place, our rock, our fortress, our strength, our very reason for existence. Help us, Lord, to have souls that dwell in the secret place of the Most High, that we may abide under the shadow of the Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen.